one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 603 for the week of Monday, January 20th, 2014. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. It's just you and me flying the good ship Talking Space tonight. How you doing today? I'm doing good. And as you just mentioned, Gene and I are the only two who'll be on tonight. However, just like last week, Mark will be joining us a little bit later in the show with another great interview. If you thought last week's was good, well, this one may be just as good, if not better. So stay tuned to that. But until we get to that point, we've got a bunch of space news to cover. So let's dive right in and let's start off with our first story. And this one, we are going out to Europe. And well, not just out to Europe, but let's say pretty far out into space as well. You might have heard of a spacecraft called Rosetta, which is designed to study comets as well as eventually land on a comet with a special robot that is attached to it. That was launched back in 2004. It made a few Earth flybys, including a Martian flyby, and it entered hibernation on June 8th, 2011. It did that because it was so far away that it could not get enough sunlight to keep all of its systems powered up and functioning. So they hibernated for 31 months. So if that was June 2011, 31 months later must be January of 2014. And in fact, on today's recording day, January 20th, 2014, the hashtag WakeUpRosetta started flying about on Twitter as just as scheduled, it woke up once again after a 31-month sleep. The onboard timer to wake it up went off as scheduled at 10 GMT, which is 5 a.m. Eastern Time, and by 1.18 p.m. Eastern, or 18.18 GMT, they received the signal to say that Rosetta is awake. Pretty amazing. 31 months, and it's still up and working. Yeah, indeed, Sawyer. The, uh, the uh, vehicle, I think, has been, as you said, down for about maybe uh, 31 months. And, of course, this, this is planned. Uh, I believe the objective for the mission is this is, a, this is not just a, a cometary encounter mission, but we're talking actually landing on a comet and, and getting you know, some soil samples from, from there or some, some kind of samples from, the, the, from a cometary nucle- nucleus, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Exactly. It has a couple of mission objectives. It will fly by two asteroids uh, named Steins and Lutetia, or Lutetia, I'm not exactly sure of the pronunciation, that one, along the way until it rendezvous with Comet 67P, and I knew you were going to make me do this, try and pronounce the name of it. Uh, 
It is Churyumov Gerasimenko, I believe. You know Better what? you than me. <laughs> you know what? The European Space Agency blog has the pronunciation, so let, let's just let them say it. Churyumov Gerasimenko. So that... That's how it's actually pronounced, much better than my pronunciation, and for once, thank you to Issa for actually publishing the pronunciation of a very difficult word to pronounce. But yes, it has a little rover on board, as I mentioned, called Philae, I believe, P-H-I-L-A-E, which is set to land on the comet. Right. The, uh, the, the, the spacecraft itself, and I, I was just looking at the Issa website very, very rapidly here, um, the, the spacecraft itself... Is named after the Rosetta Stone, or which was uncovered in uh, the uh, city of uh, uh, Rashid in Egypt, where we, you know, Westerners basically in the um, in our little <laughs> our, our little way as we usually do. Like I always mess up with GMT, um, it just in our failure to learn the language called Rosetta, but. Thanks to a French uh, linguist by the name of Champollion, he was able to go ahead and take a look at the stone and use it as a cipher, if you will, to discover what the uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs meant. And uh, uh, to quote the ISA website here, just as the Rosetta Stone provided a key to ancient civilization, so Issa's Rosetta spacecraft will unlock the mysteries of the oldest building blocks of our solar system, the comets. And you have to think about that. You know, if that doesn't make the hair on your on the back of your your neck stand up, I don't know what would. And these these cometary fragments that are running around the solar system are you know, fragments from the creation of the early solar system, been out there for billions of years. And they, too, hold the secrets to understanding what the early solar system may have been like, what it was all about, what was going on. And, and Issa, is, going, Issa is, is pointing in that direction with this particular probe. And I think NASA, too, has some uh, participation in this. I think uh, they've got also several instruments flying on, on the Rosetta spacecraft. So uh, this is not only, uh, again, a, a scientific endeavor, but it's also a joint endeavor between uh, NASA and ESA. So, you know, again, the, the partnerships are, are, are paying back some, some really good, good scientific knowledge here. Yeah, this is an amazing mission. Uh, so far, since it lifted off, it's traveled 3.8 billion miles total, including a couple of Earth flybys, the Martian flyby, and now on its way to the comet. Uh, so as they continue to wake it up, they should start getting images of the comet by about May, which by then it will still be about 2 million kilometers away. And by the end of May, it will make a maneuver to get closer to the comet with a rendezvous hopefully in August, in which point it will orbit around. It will study the environment, it will study the gravitational pull, and will then decide on a landing site for the tiny probe, which landing of that is currently scheduled for November 11th. And, of course, one of the big concerns is the fact that you're talking about a comet. It's been observed by other spacecraft, uh, such as the WISE mission, that there are pieces of ice and chunks of rock and debris that are floating and orbiting around this going at 2,000 miles a second. And you have a spacecraft with large, wide solar panels. I hope that it makes it through that okay. 
Yeah, my fingers are cro crossed for that. I mean, that, that that's a challenge, too, that uh, uh, New Horizons is going to have once it uh, gets over to uh, Pluto system. We've observed some debris in the area there, too, and uh, we're trying to figure out a way to navigate around that. And is perhaps, and I don't know if the two teams are collaborating, but uh, what we learned from trying to figure out how to weave our way around around Pluto, uh, maybe the uh, the uh, the folks over at ESA manning the the Rosetta's tiller there could go ahead and and also kind of learn something you know the what what we're trying to trying to do with uh, with New Horizons. So maybe the, the the two are collaborating and trying to figure out okay how do we navigate through all this this junk basically so we don't get hit and uh, 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 ensure mis mission success. I mean, space flight's hard, and this mission is probably one of the mo most challenging uh, landing missions that I've that have been around in a long time. And getting to Mars is 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 challenge enough, but here we are. We're going to drop this little little probe on the surface of, of of a comet, and try to get try to figure out what this thing's made out of, without you know getting basically without getting hit. So uh, my my fingers are crossed for for this whole thing. I really hope that uh, uh, the whole the whole lander thing is is going to be a, a huge success. Exactly. If you thought the seven minutes of terror was scary, this will be even scarier. Yeah, glad glad you brought that up, Sawyer. I was just just thinking about that. So so good analogy, really good analogy. Exactly. And just to make a correction from earlier, uh, the speed I said is two thousand miles per second, two thousand miles per hour. So that's still fast, especially when it's flinging off according to spaceflight now about seventy kilograms or about one hundred and fifty pounds of dust every second at speeds of two thousand miles an hour. And I think, sort of, the the uh, Philae lander is only about what a hundred kilograms, and uh, that's about two hundred and twenty pounds. Yeah, it's it's not the biggest, it's not the biggest thing in the world, world gang. So, um, it, it, so we we really want to make sure that this thing gets gets to its target. Exactly. If it can make it through all of that and the lander lands in November, it'll be orbiting around it for about a year until it gets close enough to the sun and 2015 so it's got a long mission ahead of it and now that it's wide awake it can get going and uh one of my favorite quotes i must say from this entire thing uh was fred jansen who's the mission manager he said quote this was one alarm clock not to hit snooze on <laughs> <laughs> oh boy i love it yeah it, it definitely this was definitely not something you want to hit the snooze button for Exactly. I could just imagine the spacecraft using its solar panel to hit the alarm clock. Ten more minutes. Yeah, I'll get a job tomorrow, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. You see what happens when Mark isn't here to keep us sane. And Emily, we're, we're in trouble. Speaking of in trouble, this one may or may not actually involve trouble, and that is the U.S. and, in turn, NASA's budget. Gene? Yeah, Sawyer, um, just wrap your head around this particular number. To me, it's still staggering. The United States here just passed a budget resolution uh, to the tune of, and I hope you're sitting down, folks, $1.1 trillion. That's trillion with a capital T, not B, not B for billion, trillion. That is a, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, around that number. Um, 
but um, that is the entire budget for the United States. Now, we'll drill that down just a little bit deeper and we'll uncover where NASA sits in all this. And the, the NASA budget resolution here gave NASA about $17.65 billion, which was, I believe the White House was looking for a budget of about $18 billion. Um, there's some money in there for SL for, for the space launch system or SLS. That's a uh, it's a controversial uh, large rocket. Some people call it a holdover from the Ares Five from the defunct Constellation program. The big deal about this is is the, how the media sort of looked at that number and and basically um, broke out the champagne corks. Everybody was kind of sort of celebrating on the uh, $17.65 billion figure, uh, saying that it's finally going to put, you know, Orion back on track. It's going to put the space launch system back on track. It's going to put commercial back on track. Oh, wait, will it? Well, not exactly correct. Uh, commercial was one of the big losers in this. I believe the, the initial budget request for uh, the commercial spaceflight endeavor on this was about $821 billion. Um, and I think the budget outlay was about $695 million. Um, so, again, this is to, to uh, make sure that funding for commercial crew here in the United States continues and make sure that those programs and those awards keep on going the way they're, they're supposed to go. Again, right now there are three companies vying for uh, the right to transport um, crew to the International Space Station. I believe there'll be two companies overall and I think two contracts are going to be awarded, uh, one major and one minor, with somebody playing odd man out. Uh, the uh, so far there are three players in this: um, Sierra Nevada with the uh, Dream Chaser vehicle, uh, of course Boeing with the CST-100, and last but not least uh, SpaceX with the uh, piloted Dragon vehicle. But again, that program got a little bit of a, a ding in this budget. Uh, there are other, you know, planetary science fared a little better. Uh, JPL got uh, a few a few goodies here. Um, the uh, I think uh, Mars 2020 got uh, 65 million dollars to keep going, and um, a, uh, a Europa mission uh, proposed also got it got what we were looking for, which was about uh, 80 million dollars to keep going. But um, you kind of wonder, a lot of this uh, has been, we've been nickel and diming these programs. Uh, and uh, Eric Berger from um, the Houston Chronicle in a, in a blog that he, he posted, I guess this was back on January 15th, essentially had the same outlook I had on this. Now, if I recall, and, and he brings this up right, 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 in, the, uh, right in his article, um, that uh, when Congress was looking at this, initially it was going to cost $2.64 billion a year. SLS got $1.6 billion in um, funding this year. 
So, you know, and and he and and Eric makes the point here. We could debate until we're all blue in the face about uh, what uh, if if doing SLS is actually even going to be worth worth it or not. But um, the idea is trying to set this thing up to make sure it's sustainable. I don't think we're doing that. Now, even uh, NASA's own Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, who, uh, by the way, just this past week also set up their report and essentially said the same thing. Funding uncertainty and insufficiencies continue. There continues to be a mismatch between program planning and budget realities. NASA, in consultation with the administration and Congress, should clearly articulate what it can, can and cannot do within the existing and anticipated budgets. Now, we've said on this program several times that there's got to be a level of reality here. And I think we, we kind of task NASA to do a lot of things, but we don't give it the full resources and the full budget to do it. Now, I realize NASA is going to go ahead and make do with what they've got and just kind of find a way to make it work. But we're, we're kind of pushing our space program into a box. It's sort of like saying, well, okay, and you'll have to forgive me. I'm in an automotive mode here because I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a new car. Mr. Workman, we're going to go ahead. We want you to build something along the lines of a luxury car, like a Bentley or, or something like that. But guess what? We're only going to go ahead and give you enough money to build that Bentley analogous to a Chevrolet. None of these guys are sponsors. I wish they were, but that's another story altogether. But if you see the point, you're never going to get a Bentley out of a Chevrolet budget. It's just not going to happen. And that's something we need to grapple with. And we need to sit down and figure out what's important. What do we want NASA to do? If we're not going to fund it properly, let's, okay, maybe we need to relook and reexamine our priorities and and live within those priorities and live within those budget expectations. I have to admit, I really liked your Bentley Chevrolet analogy. That That's a good way to put it. I mean, the money, people are like, oh, man, you're talking $17 billion. That's a lot of money, right? Well, in comparison to what we could be getting, no. Because, again, keep in mind, that's still less than half of 1%. So that's less than half a penny on every single dollar that would be spent towards our U.S. government here. And it's true, our space program cannot be sustained as is. Something has to go. And I can guarantee you there's somebody from every single department saying, well, no, we're not letting go. It does help that the shuttle program now is pretty much down to zero. So there's $600 million back in the budget from that. However, then comes the question, where does it go? Does that go towards SLS? What's SLS going to do? When's it going to be ready? How much money is that going to take? Because then you have the planetary scientists who say, wait a minute, why are you, you know, even considering cutting our budget? So it really is a heck of a dilemma because it comes down to the priority of which is more important, manned space exploration or unmanned space exploration. And to be honest, I don't think NASA even knows. I don't think the government knows. I don't think anybody knows. And I don't think that there is an answer. But until you come up with an answer, the budget's going to be dissatisfying for everybody. 
Yeah, I mean, sorry, the, the NASA budget historically has been flat. It's flat here, too. There's not really been an increase. So I, I still don't understand why everybody was sort of, you know, popping the, the champagne corks around here. Because in my eyes, nothing really changed. It's a flat budget. So the, to me, this wasn't cause for celebration. And the other thing, too, is, and, and I believe the, the, the NASA inspector general had pointed this out. There was a report over the summer about how Orion is being designed. It's not being designed as an overall vehicle, as normally one would. The way the design's going and the way the hardware is coming online is to meet certain miles, mission milestones. For instance, uh, for EFT-1, the vehicle that's sitting out there right now, um, that vehicle is going to meet mission milestones to complete that particular flight, and that's it. We're not flying an all-up vehicle. I think Apollo was flown all up. Um, case in point, there's not a life support system on board EFT-1. And I think there was on board Apollo 4. I'd have to look that up, but um, uh, Apollo 4 would essentially be the, the, the I guess, analogous to um, EFT-1 where, where it... Uh, where it it was a full up test, unpiloted, of course, of the uh, Apollo Command Service Module systems. And by the way, we don't have the service module here yet. And Sawyer, you're going to go ahead and talk about that in the next segment. Which leads us into round number two and our first story of round number two, and that is regarding Orion and its first scheduled complete test flight. As you know, EFT-1, which is a generic test of the vehicle, is scheduled for this year. However, the first full flight, which will go to about 40,000 kilometers away from the moon, uh, is scheduled for 2017. Or is it? Well, it turns out that there was a delay in regards to the preliminary design review for the Orion spacecraft's European-built service module. We mentioned this on the show previously about Europe getting the contract to build the service module for Orion, and they're having a few issues. Thomas Ryder, who's the director of ESA's Human Spaceflight and Operations Center, said, quote, We need to work on some mass issues, which is normal in a development, uh, looking at some aspects of propulsion and secondary structure. They were looking at this all the way back in November. And that was when their review was supposed to happen, but they delayed it, saying that, quote, it was the aim to not affect the critical path of the project and to minimize the effect on the overall schedule. But how much of an effect will it have? Well, as of right now, that's not yet certain, but this has been delayed months and months. They said that if they had gone with it then, it almost guaranteed would have failed the preliminary design review, which would have caused an even longer delay. However, this still may back it up a little bit. We don't know yet because, again, it's still very early. Uh, but to quote Ryder, after he had talked with NASA's Bill Gerstemeyer, he said, quote, I think it's too early to speculate about launch dates. Bill, being Bill Gerstemeyer, and I agree that we wait for the PDR and then look at the schedule to launch. I cannot say different than the end of 2017 because that would be premature. The end of 2017 is where it's currently scheduled for, however... What do you think? I have a feeling this is going to at least 2018, and if so, what does this then do to NASA's plans for its first crewed mission in 2021? Oh boy. Well, 
Um, I'm looking at a uh, Space News uh, article here dated, uh, let me see what the date is on this. Uh, this is January 17th uh, by Peter DeSelding that the European Space Agency promised NASA that the, that the delay in the Orion service module is not going to force a slip uh, in the PDR. I believe PDR, according to uh, uh, ESA's Director General Jean-Jacques Jourdain, uh, said that uh, PDR is scheduled to begin April 1st and run through mid-May. That's nearly a year behind the original schedule with with um, delays resulting from you know multiple technical issues uh, story that you've already cited. I believe um, the weight is also a huge issue in this. Uh, there was some criticism about ESA going into uh, to help uh, I believe um, one of the commercial crew partners. Uh, Sierra Nevada had asked ESA for some technical assistance in, I believe it's uh, the docking collar, and ESA said, "Okay, sure, we'll we'll help provide that." Uh, provided, of course, too that if uh, the, any of the other uh, partners uh, ask for that assistance, you know, we'll sure sure uh, grant it. The, the idea being floated, saying that, well, you know, you're you're trying to help. Uh, the Dream Chaser team out. Are you doing that at the expense of the uh, the service module? I don't think that's the case. To fill in some folks, the service module is actually based on the automated transfer vehicle or ATV, and they're simply just modifying the ATV for use as the uh, the Orion service module. I doubt. It. I don't think that the the criticism that uh, they did get. I don't think that that's founded, um, but uh, uh, Jordan basically said, and I'm going to quote the article here, saying, quote, I have committed to NASA that, that the preliminary design review, or PDR, will not cause a delay in the delivery of the service module, and he is adamant about that. Uh, I think EM, EM1 obviously is going to also have you know the service module attached, but Sawyer, shoot, if we're talking delay in EM1 um, and trying to figure out that, is EM2 in jeopardy? That's a very good question. Um, does EM2 actually have a ride? Is, is there going to be, be a second SLS? That's, that's another you know, up-in-the-air thing. And what is EM2 going to do? And that also is up in the air. It's it's right now scheduled for the, I believe, the uh, asteroid uh, recovery and retrieval mission. But we're not even too sure we're going to be doing that. So it, there's there's a heck of a lot of questions involved in this for the 2021 flight. Never mind the 2017 flight. Do I think we're looking at a slip? Oh yeah. Um, how far in? Who knows. I, I'm not going to go ahead and roll the dice and speculate, but we're definitely looking at. Uh, I think 2017 maybe, maybe by the boards. What are you thinking, sir? I have a feeling it'll at least be 2018. And it's interesting because the Space Flight Now article, which I got this from originally, uh, they were saying that the contract between ESA and NASA was ratified uh, back in December of 2012, covering the service module in its entirety. Uh, for 2017 and significant components of the service module in 2021 
However, it says, quote, the space agencies must negotiate for an expanded European role on the 2021 mission and on future flights, but U.S. and European officials say they could extend the service module deal or modify the agreement. My guess is that means that, obviously, that means future missions as well, but I have a feeling that that means that it will have to be beyond 2017 and beyond 2021. Yeah, I, well, I, I don't know if EM2 is going to slip, but EM1 definitely. Uh, and I would prefer, even if schedules kind of slip a little bit, I would prefer to have both vehicles in ship-shape condition to make sure that the, the, the entire Orion multipurpose crew vehicle uh, can take on the challenges that, that it's going to have uh, with uh, EM-1, because EM-1 is a very, very ambitious flyer. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's going to be big, and obviously, of course, there's the risk that it doesn't work or that something goes wrong, and that delays things, but getting to EM-1 is going to be a big deal, and whenever it happens, like you said, it's a new vehicle, so whenever it happens, it will be definitely worth watching. Especially, you know, with everything going on, it's going to be a big-time cooperation. Everything has to work perfectly between ESA and all of the other NASA centers. Speaking of other NASA centers, um... Gene, I'll let you take the next story. Thanks, Sawyer. Um, yeah, this uh, this past week, uh, a uh, House resolution, H.R. six six seven, was signed into law by uh, President Obama. That uh, uh, law redesignates the uh, Hugh Dryden Research Center as the Neil Armstrong Flight Research Center. Uh, the resolution also names what was known as the Dryden Aeronautical Test Range as the UL Dryden Aeronautical Te Test Range. Uh, both uh, Hugh Dryden and Armstrong obviously have been grand pioneers in this, but um, uh, you know Armstrong has, has you know passed away in uh, in 2012, and I don't have to tell you who that who who he was. However, not only was he the first human being to set foot on another world where no human being had ever walked before, uh, he had joined uh, what was then called the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, which was essentially the predecessor uh, for, for the current National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, in, uh, in 1955. Um, and he joined NACA as a, a research scientist and as a, as a as essentially a test pilot. He flew the X-15, um, made tremendous contributions to aeronautics before entering the astronaut corps. And uh, Hugh Dryden himself has a, an interesting little history as well. He was one of uh, the United States' most prominent aeronautical engineers and served as uh, one of uh, NASA's deputy administrators until the time uh, of his passing in 1965. Um, to quote the, Na the, the NASA website, in 1920, Dryden was named to uh, head the Bureau of Standards aer Aerodynamics section where he studied air pressures on everything from fan and propeller blades to buildings, and he joined uh, NACA in 1931, and by 1949 had become the first person to hold the new possession, position of director of the NACA, essentially what would be analogous to the NASA administrator today. And to quote uh, the NASA website further, uh, Dryden helped shape policy 
that led to the development of high-speed research programs in its record-setting X-15 rocket aircraft. His leadership was evident in establishing uh, vertical and short takeoff and landing aircraft programs. He sought solutions for the problem of atmospheric reentry for piloted spacecraft and ballistic missiles. Uh, Dryden was also instrumental in the development of the uh, Unitary Wind Tunnel Plan, which, which saved millions of dollars by avo avoiding facility duplication. And um, I'm, I'm giving you all this background data because, uh, Sawyer, you and I had talked about this um, offline just before we came on, came on to record tonight. Um, I'm not so sure... Uh, Armstrong would have really liked his name being put on there and Hugh Dryden's removed because Armstrong was always one of these people to say that, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and you know, we are, you know, trying to go ahead and, you know, cultivate the next generation of Armstrongs and Dryden's and so on. But I think, but just knowing Armstrong's personality, I'm not, I'm not, believe me, I'm not saying that Armstrong himself did not deserve this honor. Good Lord. Um, he, he does. But is it, was it right to remove Dryden's name because he was instrumental in so many other things? Um, I think Armstrong would have been the first person to say no. Um, I'm going to throw that out to some of our listeners here, but I'm going to bring up something else, too. A, a ver very dear acquaintance of, of, of mine, and Sawyer, you, you've, you've rubbed shoulders with this gentleman, too. Uh, Robert Perlman, who runs the Collect Space website. First off, a great guy, and I, I love him to death. He's, he's, he's one, of the, one of the better people on the planet, and I'm just not saying that because he's... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, just just being around him is 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 sort of a bright light. But um, over the weekend, he he wrote a an essay where he floated the idea of renaming the Ames Research Center, who is named for a gentleman by the name of uh, Joseph Sweetman Ames. He floated the idea of renaming the Ames Research Center after the late uh, Sally Ride, and. Um, I don't know if that's such a hot idea. I mean, I know that we're we're, we're kind of just the idea. It, it tugs at your heartstrings. It it says, yeah. I mean, this Sally Ride was was a remarkable woman. She was a, a fantastic scientist, a, a wonderful researcher. Gave so much to the area of astronautics. Uh, it, it served on so many boards. Served on the uh, the Rogers Commission. Served on on, on the uh, uh, Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Served um, on several other other committees, and and just was an incredible you know, force for uh, for STEM education. But to to go ahead and knock somebody's name off of something that in my eyes, in a way, was also deserving of the honor. I don't know. Uh, do we go about renaming centers? Yeah, precedent has been done because of uh, renaming uh, the Hugh Dryden uh, Research Center after, after Armstrong. But 
do we go about sort of in this sort of revisionist history type thing, or do we, you know, kind of think of other accolades to bestow on on individuals like like Sally Ride, but not to detract from the past, to to kind of keep that feeling going that it, Sally Ride and Neil Armstrong stand on the shoulders of folks like like Hugh Dryden and um, and Joseph Ames. Um, sorry, what do you what do you think? I'm going to throw that back at you. Well, a couple of things. First off, going back to what you were saying about Neil probably not wanting it, I, I can second that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I met Neil back in either 2000, I believe it was 2009 or 2010, uh, at the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum. And he was up there with a bunch of veterans. He was the only astronaut. Uh, and every question that was directed at him, he tried to avoid and would redirect it to the amazing things that the veterans and the other people around him had done rather than his accomplishments, which, first off, I thought was beyond amazing and humbling. And second, he is indeed humble. He would not want this honor, that's for sure. Second, though, as for the naming of it, does he deserve it? Yes. I would think he would. Would he want it? No. But when it comes to renaming these centers, I mean... Those of us who are NASA fans know of Ames, they know of Dryden as the centers. They don't know who the people are. I could tell you until Gene and I were talking pre-show about this topic, I had no idea who either of these gentlemen were. I didn't know what they did, who they were, and this is coming from someone of a younger generation. However, you mentioned the names Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, instantly recognizable. So might this be a way to help NASA get some recognition by renaming it after people that are well-known? Yes, but another thought of mine is might this be too soon? I mean, Ames and Dryden are people that you may not know, but however, Sally Ride and Neil Armstrong have only passed away within the last year or two, so it's still relatively recent. Is it too soon to be honoring them? I don't know, but at the same time, I think it might be a good idea just because they are very recognizable to today's youth and with NASA struggling as it is a little bit of recognition doesn't hurt yeah but still you don't want to dismiss where you've been and um, I am I, I can I, I can understand the need to go ahead and want to honor somebody like that I really can but uh, but by the same token too I think we can find another outlet to bestow on on somebody like Sally Ride and not take a current individual and remove that person's name from history and try to remove it. Uh, also, uh, to say that somebody like uh, uh, Joseph Ames was not critical to NASA's history, um, I'm I would beg to differ here. I'm going to read off. I'm, I'm going to read off something really, really rapidly here um, from this. In fact, uh, this is the uh, the write up on uh, on uh, Joseph Sweetman Ames from the NASA website. Uh, NASA's Ames Research Center is named after jo Dr. Joseph Sweetman Ames. He was a founding member of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, appointed by President Woodrow Wilson in 1915. Ames took on the NACA's most challenging assignments, but represent represented the physics angle of things. He chaired the Foreign Service Committee of uh, newly found national, the newly found National Research Council, oversaw NACA's patent cross-licensing plans, 
um, and just about saved the agency because I believe at one time Herbert Hoover wanted to shut the the whole thing down, and uh, you know Ames said, "Well, not so fast, there, Sparky." Um, so to say that, well, you know, Ames really isn't really critical to NASA's history. Uh, no, he just saved it before it was was squashed by a, by a, by another president. And um, I'm going to quote this last this last quote here um, from the NASA website in a letter to William Durand, who led the dedication ceremony. Uh, Henry H. Hap Arnold called Dr. Ames the great architect of aeronautical science, and it is most appropriate that that today the Ames Aeronautical Laboratory for is named in his honor. For this laboratory, as in the hearts of airmen and aeronautical scientists, the memory of Joseph S. Ames will be enshrined for as long as men shall fly. Close quote. Dr. Ride. God bless her, but she stands on Joseph Ames' shoulders. And to go ahead and say, well, Ames doesn't deserve the honor, well, you know, or who the heck knows him, he really wasn't involved with NASA's history, um, you know, just let, 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 let's just fix that and, and put Doc, and Dr. Ride on over there. And by the way, also something I, I didn't mention here, and it is mentioned in this article here, that uh, Joseph Ames really, really was a champion of trying to get more universities uh, to train more aerodynamicists and give young engineers on-the-job training. Um, he was into STEM long before it was fashionable to be into STEM and uh, was trying to go ahead and, and get that, that moving, just as Dr. Ride has with her whole organization, trying, trying to get you know, more, more uh, young women involved in, in, in the STEM sciences. So, uh, you know, again, to, to say she doesn't deserve the honor of having a, a center named after her, yeah, she does, but you come into that whole clash of what do you do? Do you obliterate your history? Or or do do you not? So you know, it, it, you're you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Exactly. I mean, I love the people that you mentioned. Robert Prum, like you said, is a great guy, and Sally Ride did some amazing work for women in science. Neil Armstrong, obviously, we know what an amazing contribution he did, being the first person on the moon, and some of his other previous work that you mentioned earlier in his short bio. But, and I know that Gene, you and I both are going to get some angry letters from this, but if it were up to me, as much as I mentioned before that it would be great recognition for NASA, if it were up to me, again, these are unknown giants. I think rather than changing the names to people that they might know, we should spread the word about who these people actually are, because they've done some amazing work that we may not know about, and if it were up to me, I honestly think that Dryden should be Dryden. And Ames should be Ames. This is definitely one that we want to hear from you guys on. Uh, please send us an, any of our stories if you want to as well. But in this one in particular, we want your opinions. Should they change the names or shouldn't they? Send them to us. You can do it by email at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. You can tweet us at 
Talking Space or post it on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash talking space. We want to hear from you. Speaking of people that we want to hear from, Mark recently was down at the Kennedy Space Center as they were preparing Tedris L, which is part of the tracking data relay satellite network in space, as they were preparing it for its launch. And while he was there, he got a great interview. So without further ado, here's Mark. Well, for my contribution for this week's show, first let's set the stage. Let's talk about clean room etiquette. First of all, no smoking, no drinking, no eating, no wireless devices, which means no cell phones, no smartphones, no clickers for your car doors, no key fobs. And the other part of being in a clean room is that you dress up in the little special suit with the footies and the the little net thing over your hair to keep you from introducing any contamination into a very, very clean space. So here we are all dressed up, press is being shuffled through like an airlock into the high bay of Astrotech in Titusville, Florida, and lo and behold, there's the Tedris L satellite. It was quite impressive. In some respects it was bigger than I thought, in others it was smaller. It was big and that it surprised me how tall it was and I'll say small but really uh, I'm referring to mass in that it didn't look as massive because much of what you see that the fairing goes around on top of the Atlas V is the antenna structures that you can actually see through. They're uh, a semi-transparent sort of a mesh and they fold up and curve around to to fit inside that nose cone fairing. The uh, actual base of the satellite, of course, is where all the electronics are. The solar arrays were folded up in a position for launch that on orbit, of course, would be deployed. But enough about the satellite. You'll hear plenty of that as we go on discussing it prior and post-launch. But the interesting thing to me was to actually be able to see it and see it up close. A billion dollars plus of hardware that's about to launch. And here I am once again in the presence of some impressive tech and being distracted by some very impressive people. In this case, I spoke to Brian Bowerlin. He was with United Launch Alliance. He is their mission integrator for this Tedris L satellite. And in this interview with him, you'll hear us talk about what it's what his job is like and a little bit about uh, some of his earlier work and at the end something that I think is especially important as to well, what would I need to do if I want to have a job like yours. This was recorded January 3rd, 2014. Thank you NASA, thank you Astrotech, United Launch Alliance, and go Tedris. I'm with United Launch Alliance. I'm the mission integrator for Tedris L for United Launch Alliance. When did your work with the, this particular Tedris mission start? Uh, about two years ago. Uh, all our missions that we have usually start with the integration about two years, and that's basically developing, uh, working with the customer, both the satellite customer and NASA, uh, or whoever the owner of the contract is, to work with the mission unique requirements. We get all that negotiated out and down on paper and in a contract, and that's what we have to live by when we support them. And that takes, uh, starts out about two years once the initial contract is let for ULA to be the launch vehicle. And then we assign a mission integrator to that mission, and then he starts following it from then until actual launch. 
And is, that, is that when your role is, is pretty much completed, you know, with launch? With launch, yes, for that particular mission. And then afterwards, we usually sit down with the customer and what's good, what's bad, because we know we'll probably see them again. And then we improve our processes. Do you determine what type of rocket carries the payload, or is that something NASA specifies? Or? That's something that NASA specifies when they initially are trying to find a launch vehicle that they want to launch off of. Uh, they have various choices, and then our Denver office is the one that would basically negotiate which would be best to accommodate their specific spacecraft, whether it be an Atlas or a Delta, and what the availability of that, because we can launch on either one, but depending on the manifest kind of helps also determine which one they would go on when they need to launch. It could be a planetary that's got to be launched between a certain period of time, or it could be just a standard commercial mission that they can go on either one whenever they can get into the slot. When you've got a uh, particular rocket, like this, this is going on an Atlas 401? Uh, yes, sir, Atlas 401. Uh, you ever have situations where customer has an unexpected hold and and that hardware, that launch hardware, is redesignated to something else? Yes, we have had that happen where, for some reason, uh, a particular issue, whether it be with the spacecraft itself or with the launch vehicle manifest because of other missions that have to be changed around within that manifest, that, yeah, we do redistribute hardware, manufacturing hardware, to accommodate. So, okay. mm-hmm. so this particular Atlas 401 has been planned for this, but... Uh, there, there's flexibility, I guess, in the program. And there is. There is flexibility from our manufacturing standpoint based on the uh, uh, slot manifest system that we have. What type of launch interests you most from the ones that you work with? What, what type rocket? Uh, what are the ones that you look forward to? Oh, I, I really look forward to them all. I work both uh, the NASA side, the commercial side. I worked Air Force DOD and the NRO. So uh, they all have their own various uh, maintenance requirements as far as customers are concerned. And it's just uh, it's different every time, and it has challenges, so it's all fun. The more challenges, the better. You said maintenance, and that was something in the back of my mind I was curious about. Uh, when, the, when the spacecraft is, is put in the fairing and, and taken out to the, to the uh, integration facility and hoisted up, is it powered during that time? Not during the actual lift onto the rocket, no. But once we get it integrated onto the rocket and connected, then yes, uh, the launch vehicle is always powered up, and the spacecraft is always has the capability of doing their maintenance requirements, which could be as simple as battery charging, or it could be as complex as uh, various testing that they have to do to verify everything's ready before launch. Is it? Am I correct in thinking that the satellite from, you know, the point where it's uh, assembled and testing has started, that it spends its time powered on in, a, in a, at least a monitoring state? Yes, sir, it does. Okay, never thought about that before. Yep. You, you just think of it launching, you go up, gets turned on, and, and starts to do its job. It's now, that's actually- what the telemetry is all about, is the minute it's on that pad, it's being looked at, checked out from both a launch vehicle standpoint and a spacecraft standpoint. Once we launch and release the spacecraft from the launch vehicle, it's constantly being checked from various downrange assets. So, Who is it that's, uh, for instance, with the spacecraft, what, 
party is involved with uh, with looking at its health, with its state, you know, prior to uh, actual liftoff? Uh, that would be the spacecraft customer itself, which in this case is Boeing. So when we connect our electrical systems to their electrical systems, then they are doing their health checks all throughout the system. Uh, we don't, from a launch vehicle standpoint, don't really get involved with their health checks from their satellite itself. We're mostly concerned with making sure all our systems are up and running and uh, to support that spacecraft. How long have you been doing the job you've got today? Well, I've been in the space program for about 30 years. Uh, this particular job, Mission Integrator, uh, I've been in the business for about 15 years as an actual integrator. Before that, I was uh, facility payloads managers, uh, working, making sure the facilities are ready to support a spacecraft on the shuttle side. Where did you come from prior to, to all of that? I was in the military uh, prior to that and all over the world. So my military career was 12 years, and it took me everywhere. In, in the uh, electronics or in, in planning side of the... No, most of it was, uh, in my Air Force career, most of it was uh, either a pilot or in the intelligence community. So. Interesting how you can switch switch from one career, one work, to another. The skills are, are carry on and, and probably part of your current work in some ways. And that is true. Uh, from uh, As a mechanical engineer with a BS degree and a master's degree, I used some of it some of the time. There were jobs that I didn't use any of it, but it all flowed back over eventually. Trying to get a well-rounded career. <laughs> what, what's important today? Say somebody's a, a student today in college, perhaps, mm-hmm. and they're looking down the road. Focusing in depth on on studies or, or a variety of studies, what? I would personally say that the most important thing is to one do what you like. The other thing is try to get into the engineering career field because that gives you a more rounded capability as to be able to switch careers. Okay, and the third is to make sure you do go to college and graduate because even though a lot of people say it doesn't matter that much. It's not the education that you get, it's the fact that you have the ability to go through that and get it done, the war for the all to do that. That's what people look for and say, yay, yep, he's the kind of guy we want because he went through it. That's important. Does somebody demonstrated the capability of learning Absolutely. and performing? Absolutely, that's quite important. A big thank you once again to Mark Ratterman as well as Brian for coming on and talking with Mark. So, uh, this is not the end of our Tedris L coverage. In fact, we've got quite a bunch of stuff. First, if you want to see some pictures of Tedris while it was being prepared, go into the show notes on our website and you can see the images of Tedris as well as the fairing around it. And those are courtesy of the Spaceflight Group and our good friend Jason. Yeah, and uh, uh, Jason Ron from the from the spaceflight group uh, is is going to be here next week to bring us the uh, the sights and sounds of uh, of TDRSL and of course why this mission is so important and why the tracking data relay satellite network is is extraordinarily important. It doesn't 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 just help us in space. It it has a lot to do with uh, other terrestrial telecommunications here as well, and it's it's key. Um, the, these things were set up uh, to replace uh, 
the uh, the ground tracking networks that we had here in the early days of spaceflight, but uh, they do a lot more than just track the International Space Station and have tracked the space shuttle uh, through uh, when when we were flying shuttle at the time. Uh, they do a lot more, and Jason's going to be back over here to to talk about that next week. And and I'm I'm jumping for joy. I can't wait because, uh, gosh darn it, I wish I could be down there at the Cape watching this whole stuff, but uh, I can't be. And um, so Sawyer, should we go ahead and embarrass the daylights out of our compatriot now, or what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Jason. As we mentioned, he's the co-founder of the Space Flight Group, which Talking Space is now a part of, which is almost at twenty thousand likes. So. Go over and like the Spaceflight Group's Facebook page. And that would be a heck of a birthday gift because it is Jason's birthday on the date of this recording, the 20th of January, 2014. So a big happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, buddy. And again, thanks for bringing us on board. We're proud to be part of the Spaceflight Group and uh, looking forward to having you here next week. And uh, again, hope you're enjoying yourself tonight. Exactly. So it's a birthday gift to him. Go like the Spaceflight group on Facebook. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank the wide variety of people who joined us here tonight. Boy, thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Hey, Sawyer. We, we, were, fl- we were operating on uh, two out of four cylinders tonight, but shoot, we, we had a good full show. It was, uh, it was a fun evening. Glad to be here with you. Exactly, and once again, a thank you to Mark Ratterman for the interview, who will hopefully be joining us again in person next week. And we hope you will join us again next week as well. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 